the hope of this world has come and is on his way. Those are great words, that do, great introduction to the, the passage I want to look at, the message I want to bring to you on this Easter Sunday. And I think it also describes how many of us feel in life that is somewhere between a promised hope, the hope of the world has come, and a fully possessed hope, the hope of this world is on its way. I mean, the hope of this world has come. That's why we're here today. We're here to celebrate. I think all of us know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place 2,000 years ago. And on that moment, the hope of the world, in a very real sense, was made available to all people when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Okay? The gospel isn't finished until Jesus rises. The death, burial, and resurrection. That day, this hope we'll talk about this morning was made available to all people. But that hope also is on its way. Jesus Christ is coming back, the Bible says, to finish what he started, right, 2,000 years ago. He's going to come back. Today, he gives people, you, me, some of us, all of us that are open to it, he gives us what we call a living birth, a new birth. He comes into our hearts, if we're open to it, and gives us a new birth. But when he comes back, the whole universe, the Bible says, is going to experience a new birth. The lion will lay down with the lamb. You know, there will be no more corruption. There will be no more pollution. There will be no more death, right? The whole world is going to get a new birth. But in between the promised hope, which came 2,000 years ago, and the fully possessed hope, which is on its way, we have a living hope, available to all of who are interested today. But this living hope is not a dreamy sentiment, you know, about the, the next life. It's a real power that's available to face the challenges that you and I have today. It's what I want to talk about in the few minutes I have. A living hope. You have a copy of the Bible in 1 Peter. We'll just look at one passage this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 near the end of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, in a message titled, A Living Hope. Living Hope. The Bible says these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The hope of the world is on its way. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Peter is not writing to people in this passage, if you read the whole book. He's not writing to people in power. In fact, he's not even, not even writing to people who you would say live in, let's say, the comfortable suburbs of his day. He's writing to people who had just been kicked out of their homes, who had just been kicked out of their neighborhoods. I didn't read it, but the very first verse few verses ahead, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. We learned earlier in the New Testament at this season after the church started that the Roman emperor had expelled all of the Jews and all the Jewish Christians, right, out of Rome. They, they, they'd taken things a little too far and there was some persecution going on and these people were scattered all over the place. And he wants to encourage these new Christians. Everybody's a new Christian at this point. He wants to encourage them, despite the fact that they've lost something, despite the fact that the world had turned upside down, that they have an inheritance as believers, which they are, that cannot be lost, cannot be spoiled, cannot fade, right? He wants to encourage them in an inheritance that can't be lost. He wants to encourage them, as I do to you, in a joy talked about in this passage a few times that is not tied to your circumstances okay a joy that is not tied to your circumstances one thing that's true I think of all people in this room all people listening to me today this is about maybe humanity in general we are hope based creatures think about that whether you're 17 in this room you know 77 whatever the case may be we are hope based creatures we build our lives on our hope whatever those hopes may be But what the writer wants to say here is this. In spite of what might be going on in your life, in spite of what might not be going on in your life, in spite of what you might have lost, in spite of what might be going on in the world, right? Maybe you got kicked out of your home. Maybe there's a pandemic, right? In spite of that, you have, I have, if you're a follower of Jesus today, okay? That's what he's writing to. You have a living hope inside of you that nothing can defeat, Okay, that's what he's saying. So a couple things I want to say about this living hope, both to those of us who may have it and those of us who may not. Number one, he's going to say, a living hope is not found in religion. Okay, this is the great Peter saying this, the apostle Peter. It's not found in religion. Let me say something about this. Many of you know this, but the New Testament, many of these churches... They started out one way and then, and then ended up another way, even by the end of the record of the New Testament. What do I mean by that? They started out mostly people in a church service like this would have been background Jewish believers, right? They were Jews. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus came to preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. All the apostles were Jewish. You guys know that. And the church started. But over the course of time, of course, it's kind of flipped. By the time you get to the end of the early history of even of the Bible's record, it flips. And most of the people then are Gentiles as the church begins to expand in all of the world. But what he wants to say to these friends here, who not only had been displaced by the faith of their fathers and their mothers, right? They, they had turned their back on it. Jesus, was the, Jesus you know, was, the, was the Messiah. They moved into the Christian faith. Not only had they experienced a loss there, but they'd also experienced a loss in their lives, in their homes. He wants to say, listen, the Christian faith, which they've embraced through this new birth, is not a replacement for the Jewish faith. Sometimes people ask me that, you know, Rob, what's your story? And at what point did you just decide to change in this background for this background? But that's not what 
the Christian faith. It's not a replacement for the Jewish faith. The Christian faith, okay, we're talking about here this morning, the gospel, it's a fulfillment of the Jewish faith. It's very different. That's why the temple came to an end. That's why the sacrifices came to an end. That's why this whole elaborate system came to an end. It wasn't an exchange. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he said to his disciples in Luke, at the end of Luke, when he's talking to them, they didn't even know who he was. And they, they, were, they were confused about what had happened on the cross. They were confused. And Jesus said, listen, he began with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and said, let me tell you about me in all of the scriptures. They all pointed to the Messiah. They all pointed to a person who would fulfill all of these things. The Christian faith is the fulfillment. Let me tell you about the gospel. That's what we're talking about this morning. The death the burial and the resurrection, together they are the gospel. The resurrection is the fulfillment. It's the, it's the bringing the gospel to life in your life and in my life. Without the resurrection, the cross doesn't do anything for you. That's what we're talking about, the gospel. Let me say something about the gospel. It's not an assignment for you. So sometimes that's what we think, and when we think about religion, it's an assignment. I want to get my pad out. I want to get my, my to-do list out. The gospel is not an assignment for you. The gospel is a announcement of something that has been done for you. That's why we call it good news. The gospel is something that has been done for you. Someone said this, a definition of the gospel. You've heard this before. Jesus lived a life that no one else could live. That is to say, a sinless life. Oh, right? Even the best person in this room is a sinner. All of sin that comes short of the glory of God. He lived a life that no one else could live. He died a death that all of us deserve. Because all people are sinners, and death is and sin is the death is the consequence of sin. He lived a life that none of us deserved. He died a death that all of us deserve. And he rose to give us a life that we couldn't get otherwise. This is the gospel, okay? This is the gospel. It's good news. The new birth, okay? Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. Think about that. It is a metaphor. It's an idea, but he uses this dramatic metaphor, this dramatic um, description to describe a decisive transformation of life that can only come through the resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. Saying, listen, what the Christian faith is, if you have it, Right? It's not a new set of clothes. It's not a new you know, organization. It is not a, a new list, a different list. It is, the best they can come up with, is a new birth. It's a dramatic transformation of life. As if, Jesus would say, you have been born again. That's what the Christian faith is. That's what it should be. That's what it is. Do you have it? Do I have it? It's not a call, by the way, to morality, I don't know what your background is. Like, I'm going to become a Christian. It's not a call to morality. It's not a call to religion. I'm talking about the new birth. In fact, this is the irony of this powerful story, the Bible, the New Testament, the Christian faith. It's not only not a call to a new religion. It's not a call to a new morality. Listen, it's a challenge to it. Think about that. It's a challenge. The people that crucified Jesus largely was the whole world, but the, the religious establishment, these people, they were very committed to the moral uh, teachings of the Old Testament, right? Why? That's ironic. Why were they the ones that crucified Jesus? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a challenge 
to religion, right? It's not a replacement. It's the fulfillment. Jesus, this term that Peter uses here, the new birth into a living hope, you've heard that before, many of you have. He got it from Jesus. Very, very famous story. Many of you have heard it. It's in John chapter 3 where Jesus is having a conversation. A lot of Jesus' teachings through conversations. And he's doing it with a religious leader. I'm sure this is on purpose. And this guy, Nicodemus, John 3, Nicodemus was, you know, he was plus plus. He was a, he was a ruling member of the Jewish council. He was sort of a professional uh, Christian kind of sense. He was a professional um, a man of the cloth, so to speak. He was a good guy. He has a number of appearances in the Bible. He is one of the only two people that took Jesus, helped take Jesus down from the cross and anointed his body. We don't have to know that about him. In other words, he was a guy that was a moral exemplar and also someone who was a practitioner of the faith. And Jesus looked him in the face and said, Nicodemus, with, passion, with compassion, your religion can't save you. <laughs> your religion can't change you. You, Nicodemus, must experience the new birth if you want to know the kingdom of God. Listen, if Nicodemus' religion was insufficient, if Nicodemus' moral uh, morality was insufficient. So is yours, and so is mine. Okay. The a, a living hope is not found in religion. I don't know if you know this too. Uh, when we talk about the resurrection today, it's our subject. Jesus Christ. Some of us may know, not know this. Most of us probably do. Was not the first person to rise from the dead. Sometimes we think resurrection. It isn't a mind blowing thing to talk about the resurrection. It's mind blowing. It's unbelievable, right? I mean, it's a historical fact and it's central to the gospel. But even when you stop and think about it, if you actually saw someone rise from the dead, it's pretty unbelievable. But Jesus Christ was not the first person to rise from the dead, even in the Bible. One of Jesus' closest friends. His name was Lazarus, and he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. You might say, as far as the New Testament goes, they were the closest personal friends of Jesus. Not disciples, not apostles, friends. He had dinner with them, hung out with them. They lived a short walk from, from, uh, from Jerusalem. Jesus was doing his thing, John chapter 11, and someone comes to him as they would come to you and say, Listen, Jesus, your friend died. And Jesus looks to his disciples and says, Listen, um, let, tomorrow we're going to go and see them. Because they're, right, we're going to stop what we're doing. And they do that, and they're on their way walking. It's, it's, you know, it's an hour or two walk from Jerusalem. And while they're walking, Martha, who's the sister of this friend, comes running out to Jesus. And she says to him, Jesus. You know, she loves him. They're friends. And she says, Jesus, if you had only gotten here a little bit earlier, my friend, my brother, your friend, would not have died. And she says that because she's been friends with Jesus. She'd seen Jesus heal people of sickness. So she's, she's, not, she's, she's being very serious. Lord, if you would have gotten here a little bit early, you know what Jesus says to her? He says, Martha, listen, your brother will rise again. Right? And what Jesus, and, and she says right back to him, she says, oh Lord, I know that my brother will rise again at the last day. In other words, it's almost like this not very comforting statement, right? Sometimes pastors say that to you. you. You'll see them again someday, right? That's what I say sometimes. You'll see your friend again someday. She, she sort of says this to Jesus. She says, Lord, I know that I will see that he will rise again at the last day. Now, where did she get that? She's not just being, you know, um, repeating what Jesus said. It's my point. 
the idea of a resurrection was, um, was, was appreciated and understood as part of the Jewish faith and, and now the Christian faith. It wasn't a new idea. But what she was saying was her understanding, the Bible's understanding up to this point of the resurrection, was it happened at the end of time. The oldest book in the Bible, I think, many would say, is the book of Job. Famous verse, chapter 19. Job says, there's a lot I don't know, but this I know. I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth on the last day. See, that's where she got that from. But that's not what Jesus meant when he said, your brother will rise again. 20 minutes later, they get to the tomb. These people have no idea what's going on. They just come here, lay some flowers down. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And the sisters go, why are we doing that? They, if you follow John, John chapter 11, they go, Lord, this is a bad idea. This is, this is not going to smell very well. This is literally a paraphrase of what I would this is, a, this is really a stupid idea. Jesus says, roll the stone away. Then, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And, if, it, it, and this is, I've never seen a movie of this, but it almost could be funny. Okay? Out comes this guy, Luke 11, John 11. It says his hands and his feet were wrapped. His face was wrapped, how the Jews did it, almost like a mummy, comes walking out of the tomb. And Jesus says, just passionately, take that thing off of his face, right? Here's what's, what was so mind-blowing. Why am I telling that story? What was so mind-blowing about what happened there and what happened in Jesus was not a resurrection. It was what was thought to happen at the end of history happened in the middle of history. That's what was so mind-blowing. They were all waiting for the sermon. They'd heard about it. You know, the lion will lay down with the lamb. There will be no more corruption. There will be no more pollution. We know that there's going to be no more death. We're all looking forward to that day, and we know that my brother will rise in the last day. And Jesus said, well, not so much. He's going to rise today. And even though all of that good stuff is coming at the end, if you want a living hope today, you can have, here's the money line for my sermon today. What the Bible offers you is this. It's not a living hope for the future. I want to give you a living hope for your future. When you, it's a living hope from the future in your life today. That's what's offered. My question to you, the question of the sermon is, do you have it? Right? Christian or not, do you have it? Do you have the living hope? Because that's why he came. And let me say something real quick which may be, I don't know, offend some of us here. The Bible says this. This is one passage. There's only one kind of Christian. Okay? It's those who've received the living birth. Right? That's what Peter says. It's what James says. It's what Paul says. It's what Jesus says. And I'm not talking about denominations. I'm saying there's only one way to become a Christian. You've either been united with Christ through his death, that is, on the cross, he paid for your sin, and you've been united with Christ in his resurrection, that his life, that he defeated death, is released in you a living hope. Unless you've had that experience, you're not a Christian. Not because God doesn't love you, but this is what it means to be a Christian. It's not a religion. It's not an exchange, one religion for another. It's a living hope. Christ fulfilled it. He died a death that you deserve and I deserve, and he offers a life that you can get nowhere else. Do you have it? 
Okay? A living hope is not found in religion. Second, a living hope is more powerful than your greatest loss. Okay? Not only are we giving a living hope in this passage, Peter's saying, we're given an inheritance. Something comes along with it. Now watch this carefully. He says these words on purpose. They can never perish, spoil, or fade. Why say that? Friends, God has given you a living hope and an inheritance. We all know what that means. That can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now partly it's meaningful because these people had just lost their, their, their sort of material inheritance. So it's, it's encouraging to them, but friends, it should be encouraging to us because let me say something that you probably know is true. There is nothing that you have or that you will ever have or you will ever achieve that will not, over the course of your life, perish, spoil, or fade including the people that you love, moms and dads, including the people you brought into, into this world. Okay? Every single person in this room, you all, I, me, you, you will say goodbye to all the people you love either on your deathbed or on theirs. Okay? He says you have an inheritance that will never perish, spo- spoil, or fade. It's in this, you, excuse me, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had trials and suffer. No one is going to take this from you. The promised hope, the hope of this world has come, is going to eventually turn into a fully possessed hope and even your sufferings your personal sufferings and your trials can't change that listen they can't knock it out of you that's the beauty of a of a new hope in fact this passage says your personal sufferings right your personal trials not only can't knock it out of you they help deepen your faith and increase your joy. Why is that? Because they loosen your grip on the false hopes that you are holding so tightly to, right? That's what he's saying. Because everything in this life, outside of the promised Holy Spirit, outside of the inheritance that God gives you, everything else in this life is coming down. I don't know if you know the name Corey Ten Boom. Many of you may know this story. She and her family um, were watchmakers, jewelers in the the early part of World War II. They were well-to-do. They were Dutch. They lived in in Holland, and the Germans came and occupied the Netherlands. And they weren't in any trouble. They were very upstanding citizens, but they made a fateful decision around 1940. And that fateful decision was they were going to help their friends who were Jewish be protected from the persecution and being sent to the death camps. And they created this little room. It was a room, actually, um, a false wall in their house, eventually called the hiding place. Maybe some of you have read the book. And they would hide up to six people at a time in the size of your bathroom for months on end that would live in this house. And over the course of some many months, they helped over 800 people escape the death camps forever and ever, okay? But they were eventually caught. 
by the authorities, by the German army. And even though they weren't Jewish, they were sent to a death camp, or excuse me, a labor camp. And eventually, her father and her sister died in those death camps. And only because of a clerical error, if you've ever read the book, only because of a clerical error that released her days before the entire block where she lived went to the gas chamber she lived. And she lived on for another almost 40 years and wrote books and traveled the world and and lived all the way into the 1980s. But near the end of her life, someone asked her a question. I think it was Chuck Swindoll, if you know that name. And he said to her, Corey, listen. All of her pictures, if you look on the internet, she has this kind of um, characteristic smile on her face. And she said, how is it that you have kept your joy in your life when so much of your life is about loss. She'd lost virtually everyone she knew when she was a young person. And she said these fateful words. I have learned to hold on to all things loosely so that God will not have to pry them out of my hands. I've learned how to hold on to all things loosely with a smile so that God will not have to pry them out of my hands. Now you might say, what kind of a God would want to pry things out of your hands. A God that loves you and knows that all of those things that you hold on so tightly, they're all coming down. And he does that. He loves you. That's the kind of God that would do that. And it really begs the, the, the central question of the gospel. It's the second question I want to ask you is before we close here today. That is this. Christian or non-Christian, are you willing to trust him with your life. See, a lot of people have heard the message I'm giving here this morning, this Easter sermon message, but they've not received it. Why is that? It's because they don't trust God. God's trying to pry something out of my hands. They question the love of God. And a lot of Christians, some of us, are living incomplete lives, somewhat defeated lives, because we don't trust him with areas of our lives. It's the central question of the gospel. Are you willing to trust him? Do you believe he loves you and he knows what's best for you? Well, I know it. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's old-fashioned. We church used to believe this. People used to do this. The Bible says this, but it's old-fashioned. Okay? Do you believe that he loves you, that he knows what's best, and are you willing to trust him or go do things your own way? It's the central question of the gospel. Tim Keller, if you know him, just wrote a book, just published in a few months ago, called Hope in the Times of Fear. And he's right, he's a a great thinker and writer and pastor, but this book is very personal for him because he was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he opens the book and says, in so many words, I don't know if I'm going to make it (laughs) for very long. But he said these words, I think are helpful when we think about this question. Unless... You have a God who tells you things you don't want to be true. Do you? See, it's very fashionable today to rewrite what we want God to say, right? Unless you have a God who tells you things you don't want to be true, you'll never be changed when he tells you things that are too good to be true, like that he forgives you and that you're going to be resurrected and that he's going to adopt you. A living hope is more powerful than, and, than your greatest loss because a living hope is the only thing that cannot be lost. 
Understand that? Some of you have great health today. You may not have it tomorrow. Some of you are in a great marriage today. It may not be around tomorrow. Some of you have a great career today. It may not be around tomorrow. Every tree in the forest is coming down. And God's saying, listen, I want you to enjoy it. But see, once the living hope is in the center of your life, once you open your life to it, you trust God with it, here's the irony, here's the beauty, then you can actually begin to enjoy all of the gifts that God gives you because those gifts don't have to become your salvation. They don't have to become your meaning. You don't have to build your life even on your beautiful family. It's all God's gifts. And you can enjoy them while you have them. A living hope is more powerful than your greatest loss. Last thing, a living hope brings great joy. One of the most important places the new birth shows up is in your hopes, right? It's in your hopes. How you live today, how you live next week, how you live next year is affected by how you not only understand the future, but how you're connected to the future. It's not just hope from the future, it's hope or for the future, it's hope from the future. And if you have that hope in you, this is what the resurrection really is. It's a real transaction. It's God bringing his life into you. Until you have that hope living in you, or when you have that hope living in you, even in a world where there are real trials, even in a world where there's real suffering, even in a world where there's a pandemic, even in the world where you've been kicked out of this, that, and the other thing, lost your job, maybe lost your health, nothing can ultimately defeat you. You can face anything in life and not be defeated by it because you have an everlasting joy and inheritance that cannot spoil, perish, and fade. A power inside of you connected to a future that nothing else can defeat. It's only by meeting the risen Lord personally that you can be changed, you can be saved, and have hope for the future as part of of your life today. Do you have it? Do you have it? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. And I want to, we're going to sing too, but I want to just take a minute for everyone in this room, even at home. And I want to give you an opportunity right here Christians, maybe you need to open your lives, some closed off rooms, to God to trust Him more fully. Surrender something in your life. Open your life, this department in your life, compartment to the living hope. But let me say this to those in this room, in this, in this live stream today. You'd say, listen, I've, I've been to church before. I've heard Easter messages before, but I've never come to a clarity and a place where I've understood that Jesus Christ, the whole point, he lived a life that I could never live with all of my best efforts. He died a death that I deserve, even if I'm not the worst of sinners. And he rose, not to give me an assignment, but to offer me a whole new kind of life a living hope, uh, an, uh, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, a love that is beyond description, the forgiveness of sin. 
if you would say, gee, Rob, I, I've never personally opened my life to that. See, God didn't put a rope around your neck. Then all you need to do is ask for it. In the quiet of your seat, in your home. It's, no, it's not, a, not, a, not a, a, um, something you need to do you know, uh, in a public place even. But in your heart right now. Just say the simple words that I said, many did, you know. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. All you need to do is say, God, thank you for sending Jesus into this world as an invasion from the future to die for my sin and to rise and give me a new life. And I open it. I, I, I'm open to your grace and your forgiveness. Come into my life. Be my Savior and Lord. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, I thank you for these friends and I pray your word would go out powerfully and Lord, you would answer those prayers and you would give the living hope, the promised Holy Spirit to those who ask for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.